Welcome to The Observatory. I'm Jessica Helfand. And I'm Willie Wong. The Observatory is a podcast from Design Observer. On each episode, we talk about a few topics that are on our minds and in the air. Our show is sponsored by Moo, which makes things that help you stand out and look great. Moo has a new line of business cards, Moo Letterpress, that combines classic craftsmanship and modern technology. Learn more at Moo.com. So my usual co-host, Michael Beirut, is somewhere on the other side of the world right now, off the grid. And I'm delighted to be joined today by designer Willie Wong. Thanks, Jessica. Great to be here. Willie and I have known each other for a long time. After being my student at Yale, he spent eight years as chief creative officer of NYC and Company, New York City's official tourism and marketing organization. I can't even begin to imagine. And most recently, you've been traveling a lot with something called Art Place. What is Art Place, Willie? So Art Place is a temporary organization set up by a bunch of foundations, federal agencies, and financial institutions to think about how arts and culture could play a major role in community development. And that means working with artists, working with architects? Artists, architects, arts organizations, different types of designers, architects, graphic designers using the kind of world of creativity to help neighborhoods, to help cities reinvent aspects of their places. Sometimes it might be there's an economic crisis somewhere. Sometimes it's an environmental issue. Sometimes it might be a a severe lack of housing. Can you give us an example of what that kind of engagement is at the civic level, but also at a visual level, like something that's already completed that might, uh, for our listeners, help them understand what something means when you're actually going back and working in communities to make change? One of the places that I've been uh, to recently with Art Place was uh, St. Paul in Minneapolis. And a few years ago, they funded this project called Irrigate which is a project to think about ways to mitigate the kind of pending construction and disruption of their central corridor with the uh, development of a new light rail system. And Mm -hmm. so during the course of three years, all the businesses would be affected. And so they brought in about over like 600 artists to think about place-based collaborations. 600 artists? Yeah, it's incredible. Did they bring them in all at once? It was spread over three years. And I think they worked on over 150 different uh, collaborations So sometimes it could be a mural, sometimes it might be a performance, but basically trying to bring the community into this kind of construction zone and to shift the sentiments from a sense of like fear and loss of control to something where the businesses and the community can get together and feel like they have control over the situation. It sounds like such a win-win for everybody when you deal with these kinds of crowdsourced in a, in a physical way, in a creative way, in a collaborative way, as you rightly say. Are you encountering or have you encountered uh, resistance? And if so, is that a cultural thing? Is it an is it age-based? Are there people who've lived for, say, a long time someplace where they, they don't want to see it changed by artists or by anyone? Yeah, that's definitely something that we've started to kind of have conversations around, where uh, cities and places by their nature are constantly changing. And so who is the rightful owner of a place? Is it someone who's lived there for 10 years or 20 years? And so people start to develop this sense of a nostalgia for this is what this place used to be like. And now all these new people or new kind of experiences are coming in and it's changing my community. Um, And so this is a really kind of interesting conversation to have as the demographics of this country continue to change and more people are shifting from rural places into urban places or from uh, other countries to the U.S. One of the things I wanted to ask you about is I I think that this idea of a place is a misnomer. So a place 
that is a place to you is maybe a very different place to me. I think the way we experience place is extremely idiosyncratic. And so this is a challenge, certainly, that, that urban planners face, that architects face, that buildings and, and infrastructure becomes kind of this common ground. And, and maybe one of the places you're piercing the veil, separating that sort of big government torpedoing in from, from being the norm is actually, in fact, to, to mobilize and, and, in a sense, destabilize in a good way the kinds of programs that determine the cities that we're living in and the places that we, we go to. But I would think that a big piece of this is the nostalgia people feel for the places they live. Have you found that to be the case? Yeah, I think people hold this uh, tension between what they remember, what they grew up with, and what a uh, neighborhood is now and where it's headed. And I think that fear of new people coming in who also lay claim to a place, suddenly who gets to decide what building gets built? What does that building look like? What is it doing for the community? I think when you have different people wanting some different things, that's where that tension is. And I think this is where creativity, the arts, comes in to help explore that conversation in a way that is not polarizing to people. And I think probably, too, that museums become places where you go back to the permanent collection, right? So so much of what we do as designers is about managing some kind of tension between what's variable and what's constant. So you know you can go to the Met and see the great master paintings, but you also know you'll get to see some great, you know, Christo installation or some great, I don't know, Mary Ellen Mark photography show, right? Yeah, and I think the most amazing thing is actually when you have a piece that's been sitting in a museum forever suddenly brought into a new context. It also picks up completely different meanings, too. And so I think there's no stability, really, in in a lot of our uh, memories of things. And as our conditions change, we have to be open to new reads on things. Yeah, but before we throw the baby out with the bathwater, <laughs> I think that nostalgia is actually a deeply human conceit. I mean, it has such a bad rap, right? It's kitsch. It's uh, In the 19th century, it was referred to as a hypochondria of the heart. Uh, when I wrote my book on scrapbooks, I remember doing a lot of research thinking about if designers self-identify as being about what's next and what's new, what is our relationship to the past? And how do we modulate that relationship so we're not... Uh, repeating ourselves, so we're not playing it safe. Um, but I think when you when you deal with these senses of place, uh, of communities, they're people's homes, and, 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 and incumbent upon any of us thinking about that is to think about, you know, where they've where they're coming from, and and the families and the histories that that preexisted and and are form a very important part of their sense of the scope of what all that means. Yeah, and I think that it's important to recognize all that has come before us. And I think that uh, there's nothing more important than uh, holding on to aspects of our culture. Uh, that said, I do think that it's important to recognize the different worlds that we all live across. I think on a social media kind of experience, you might not have the kind of constraints of geography to qualify understanding of of a situation or a context. How does geography play into the work you're doing? So I think in our daily lived experiences, geography forces a shared experience amongst people. Whereas mm -hmm. online, you can be from anywhere in the world and you can kind of uh, experience that conversation uh, as one kind of community. I remember very early in the days of the internet, early 90s, um, there was a book called The Great Good Place uh, that many people were reading and recommending to me to read. 
The idea was, could you create websites? Could you create online venues and destinations that get somebody to want to come back to that page? How do we get someone to come back to Design Observer? How often do you change the information? How reliable is that information? Is it about the people that they follow or the writers that they follow or the pictures they want to see? So the idea that the place has those kinds of values just built into it, you know, you want to go back and see that building or that person or that tree or swim in that river or eat at that restaurant. And nostalgia, I think, then becomes something that's really obviously part of what it is to be alive, to be a sentient being. And I think it's funny that the apparatus that we've come to rely upon so intrinsically in the last 15, 20 years has really developed its own kind of geography, its own visual grammar, its own sense of currency. And even using sound and video now, when you go to a website and you look at it, it's not necessarily that you want to go back to it and, and find what was there before. But in fact, the very nature of change online mitigates against that completely. It's hard to have nostalgia in an online venue, although arguably it's what Facebook does. One of the things I love to do, actually, is to go to archive.org and research what web experiences had been like over the years. I wish that someone actually came up with a way for you to kind of uh, drag some type of bar and see that change over time. <laughs> so, Willie, I'm curious, in all of your travels, is there a place that you're longing to go back to? And maybe to put it in a different light, is there a place that piqued your sense of nostalgia about that place or about your own experience growing up? Uh, that really changed the way you see the work you're doing? I flew over to Anchorage very recently with our place, and it's actually one of the first places that I went in the U.S. When I immigrated from Hong Kong years and years ago, that was the stopover for the flight, the route. And you remember that? Yes, very, very clearly. And uh, to hear from the community now tell me that their school system is actually the most diverse in the country blows my mind wow. how places have changed. Oh, I'm getting goosebumps. That's so interesting. Did you spend time there? We were there for about a week and we met with so many different people, learned about their conditions and learned about their you know, situations and the tensions and the opportunities. And it's just so fascinating to see what different neighborhoods are dealing with. And when you were a kid and you had a stopover, how long were you there? At most a few hours. And of course, like over time, I probably imbued different ideas of what Anchorage and Alaska would be like. But I clearly remember that stopover and telling myself one day I'll make it back there. And now a word from our sponsor. This episode of Design Observer is sponsored by Moo, which helps you stand out and look great. Moo has a new stationery collection, Moo Letterpress, that combines classic craftsmanship and the modern print technology Moo is known for. You can see examples of Moo Letterpress at Moo.com. So, Willie, when I read about those two guys, as many of us did, who broke out of uh, Danamore Prison in upstate New York recently, uh, many of our listeners may have seen in the news, they left a note. It was a post-it note, a bright yellow post-it note that said, have a nice day. Uh, but they didn't leave it there. Instead of the standard smiley face, their smiley face was a caricature uh, of a face with slanted eyes, buck teeth, and a coolie hat. We'll put a link to this on our website. So, Willa, you are a designer, as we've established. You're also Chinese-American. What did you make of this when you saw it? Did it surprise you? You know, I was surprised by the perfection of the drawing. The fact that the that hat was this uh, 
symmetrical triangle, and so was the circle of the face. So in a way, I thought to myself, A, this does seem surprisingly racist for a post-it note, that the person took so much care to render the drawing and uh, what it meant, whether uh, he was trying to disparage Chinese Americans, Asian Americans, or was it that he was trying to leave some type of a clue to someone, whoever found it? And what did you come up with? (laughs) I was trying to really think about what the interpretation of this was, whether um, he suggested that they were digging their way to China or whether or not that was a location that uh, someone else on the inside uh, needs to meet with them and whether or not they thought that the media would pick up on this and actually broadcast some type of message to someone else. I know that when I was digging around the articles, uh, Richard Matt, one of the prisoners, uh, surprisingly was a talented artist. He drew portraits of like Obama and Oprah, uh, all these different celebrities. And the sign-off on the drawings, you can tell, has the same type of graphic style as the post-it note. So one thing that um, surprised me I'm, 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 in looking at it again was they made the face with tape. Oh, some is that kind how it of worked? Tape. So the, the head is actually a perfect triangle. Yeah. Maybe it's some kind of black tape, like electrical tape. And then how did they get that circle? And the, the eyes and the face, the eyes and the smile and the buck teeth are all made with probably the same kind of tape. I'm wondering if the circle was there already. Because the circle is a different weight of line. And then the handwriting is kind of weirdly some mixture of a, an almost script face with a, you know handwriting. And, and it actually curves to meet the circle. Uh, so it's sort of you know just below the face itself. So this wasn't done in a scattershot way. This was not done as a sort of off-the-cuff thing. I mean, they really, they planned this. Yeah, no, it's definitely a very, very precise and intentional, uh, you know, even to the point of using that uh, magnet to uh, hold up the post-it note on the steel pipe. But when was the last time you saw an example of this kind of racism? These type of situations, I think, fall on a spectrum. Sometimes they're unintentionally so, and it might be uh, pure ignorance, or sometimes it's uh, like hard racism. Most recently, uh, all of the stories behind Rachel Dolezal uh, pretending to be a black woman uh, living this life, this this like lie, does that fall within this spectrum? I think at some point, I remember Miley Cyrus pulling her eyes back, uh, imitating a Chinese person. There are different kind of situations where you know, you roll it off your, uh, as if it's ignorance, and sometimes it's deep and hurtful. But it's interesting that that's the image they leave behind. And it certainly left a lot of questions, more questions than answers. Yeah, but I think it's really great that I feel like this country is starting to be able to have these hard conversations and really pushing on what all of this means. How do we kind of have critical conversations about race and politics and, and life? You know, I think we're basically seeing the results of this nation's experiment in a way, right? Like this conversation about a melting pot versus the salad or the stew. Um, Mm -hmm. There was a report, I think, that came out of the Pew Research uh, Center recently that talked about the multiracialness of this country and whether or not if you were uh, uh, the child of a biracial uh, couple, um, a mom or a dad who's black or white, uh, you're propensity to associate with one race versus another and the likelihood that you would have faced some type of discrimination or an act of racism and how, uh, you know, we're going to have more of these conversations as this country evolves. Mm -hmm. And we should. We must. 
so one of the interesting things that came up recently was the Treasury's thinking about redesigning the $10 bill. And the novelty here is they asked people what they want to see on the $10 bill. And specifically, they are planning to put a woman on the $10 bill. And so they're asking folks to consider uh, what woman uh, who's deceased uh, in the history of the U.S. represents democracy. It made me think when I read the story immediately of the controversy in in England over putting Jane Austen uh, to replace Darwin on the face of the 10-pound note. Um, People get really proprietary about these sorts of things. And, of course, it's high time that there is a woman on the uh, the $10 bill or on any bill. Uh, I think we've had Susan B. Anthony and we've had uh, Sacagawea. We've had basically currency in coin form. Women have been represented over time. Martha Washington uh, briefly in the late, uh, very late 19th century. But I think that the idea of that putting somebody on the bill, I mean, what, what are the criteria by which you seek to honor somebody in this way? So this is somebody, should be somebody who uh, was important. This is somebody maybe who was progressive. Uh, the minute you get into progressive, you get into left versus right. You get into this kind of debate about wh- what is progressive, and you can't put, I don't know, a, a, a suffragette on the $10 bill, but, but maybe you can. Yeah, and I think it goes back into this idea of um, does this character, uh, this figure, represent a shared history amongst all of us, or to should come it back be to the a, melting pot argument? Yeah, is it is it a lesson? Is it should it be didactic in any way, or is it really to kind of mark some moment that we all need to know that maybe we don't know? So I have a vote. Do you have a vote? I'm thinking that um, for myself, like Harriet uh, Tubman was someone who kind of came to my mind right away. Yeah, Harry Tubman's getting a lot of votes, uh, as is Rosa Parks. Uh, my vote's Rachel Carson. Huh, interesting. So Rachel Carson wrote, wrote uh, a number of books. She, uh, she was born in the early 20th century. Uh, she was uh, a, trained as a marine biologist. She was one of the earliest conservationists. And the reason I think she would be great is she's not very well known. She wrote a book called Silent Spring. Uh, I think it was very famous when it came out. And she, um, you know, she was, I think, a real uh, ambassador for, evangelist for, advocate for, uh, the idea that we all of us contribute to the world of our making and that we have a responsibility that's greater than the sum of our parts. And uh, she was an early environmentalist, and I think she was also a writer. So I I think for me, because she did two things, she's, many people know her as a writer. Uh, She wrote many books. Um, but I think because she thought about the planet, there's a kind of a largesse to that question, to thinking about not just politics or not just freedom, but thinking about really the whole, the whole world that I think makes her really worthy. And I think that these are the uh, you know, types of women that, is it a history lesson that we all should know? Should it be someone who actually we d- visually don't identify with and uh, it pushes us to learn a little bit more about our own country? It does. And so I think the idea that we get into these arguments about black, white, tall, short, fat, thin, gay, straight, you know, Asian, Caucasian, I don't think it's that. I think it's what kind of mind did this person have? What kind of contribution did this person make? Uh, And how did that contribution enable or pave the way for the rest of us to keep going with work that that continues to be need to be done. And you could say that about Harriet Tubman and about Rosa Parks and about any of the I mean there's so many worthy people, right? Let's just start there. And it is only ten dollars. And somebody said, <laughs> put her on a put a woman on a more important bill. But Travis Parrington, his proposal had a different kind of appeal. There were no people on his currency. And I think that was something that Michael and I talked about. And I think there's something compelling about the idea that something might have more impact or longevity or bespeak a kind of larger 
need to communicate something other than the commemoration of an individual. Um, I also think, you know, conversely, that people are drawn to faces. And I think portraiture is an incredibly intoxicating visual method by which we, we make form. And, and uh, you know, it's important. There's not that much currency. And I think one of the important aspects of this, too, is as I think about contemporary forms of payments, mobile payments, where maybe one day we really might not have physical currency anymore, does this become a very like last chance uh, opportunity to, to designate important people and important issues while we still have physical currency? You're right, though, that it's going to continue to change. And, I mean, you can already, with credit cards, put anything you want, put your dog's face on a credit card. You can do that with stamps. <laughs> I mean, that gets into the larger questions about personalizing everything, visualizing whatever you want to visualize, and, and what role is a designer going to play in the future. Uh, maybe a role very much like the one you're starting to have at Art Place, where you are a kind of a community organizer. Um, you're kind of somebody who's really walking in different uh, sort of different disciplines at the same time, looking to orchestrate and, and, and really create consensus in ways that are very creative, some of them visual, some of them procedural. And sometimes I think part of it might be that, um, do we really want to live in this kind of perfect kind of egalitarian and uh, utopian world, whether it's because of the technologies or, um, you know, beliefs that we all should share, or does the world um, and all of the kind of interfaces of that world give room for discretions? Or... No, it comes back to this question of, of my sense of place is not your sense of place. They can both be great, but they're maybe parallel. Yeah, exactly. So do all of these opportunities allow for certain kind of, kinds of like personalization without kind of giving up a shared narrative? The Observatory is a podcast from Design Observer. The website is designobserver.com. You can find links there to things we discussed today, including ArtPlace. Between episodes, keep up with Design Observer on Facebook and on Twitter. Let us know what you thought of the show and if there's something or someone you want to hear from next time. You can subscribe to The Observatory on iTunes, SoundCloud, or however you take your podcasts. Go to designobserver.com slash theobservatory. That's designobserver.com slash theobservatory. And if you're not listening already, please tune in to Debbie Millman's Design Matters. A big thank you to Moo for sponsoring this episode of The Observatory. Teddy Blanks wrote our theme music. Our producer is Blake Eskin. Thanks for talking with me today, Willie. Thanks, Jessica. Happy travels. Happy travels.